Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. This evening we are in part three of a three-part series looking at what it means to be children of God who are called out called out with the idea of serving his purposes and his plans and not ours. A people called out to serve primarily to see his kingdom come. As followers of Christ who have had their lives transformed by the, the work, by the work of the cross, we are now part of his purposes, his plans to see his kingdom come. And what does that mean in everyday life for us? What does that mean with shoes on? That we have been transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And it's not just about us thinking that we've got a ticket to heaven or whatever that means. But he wants to see his plans. He wants to see his purpose fulfilled in our generation. We, week one, we looked at what our great passion should be. That we are called to live out of love. The command to love God and to love our neighbors. Last week, we looked at our great pursuit of a, of a called out people, that there is no greater adventure than the adventure of seeking to live with God, the creator of the universe, at the center of our life. Nothing is more exciting, nothing is more thrilling, nothing is more life-giving, nothing is more difficult as well. It will give us opportunities to see and experience things we did not think possible. It'll bring people into our lives who we have never would normally have met. It will expose the deepest and darkest sins of our life. It'll explore, it'll explore the fault lines in our heart. It will challenge our self-reliance. It will demand the best of us. It will draw out the best of us and it will confront the worst in us. And it will never end because this is an eternal journey. But at every turn, it is worth it. So tonight, I want to slightly shift away from the Great Commission that we looked at really for the last two weeks, where I was originally going to land this series tonight. But I want to conclude by looking at one of the foundational reasons why today we are a secure people, why we are called out and we are safe, why we are rooted and grounded and established in him. And it's nothing of ourselves But this foundational principle brings a life-changing dimension to our life, but also brings us an incredible thrill and security. So I want to go back to the language of our first session about being a kingdom people by reminding ourselves of the great privilege of our lives and the great future hope that we will see God. We will see God. There is no other faith. There is no other tradition. There is no other religion here on earth that has that assurance. We will see God and we will know him. And we're going to look and we're going to read the first epistle of John. We're going to read that from the end of chapter 2 to through the verse uh, chapter 3. There is actually some dispute who wrote this book, 1 John. But I probably, with most other people, believe that it was John who wrote the gospel, who wrote that. Some scholars say that it may have been his disciples years later, but I am not convinced of that argument, and I believe it was John himself. Why is that important? Why do I just want to mention that? I'll tell you why. 
he was probably writing to the church at Ephesus where he had gone to live and he would die there an old man. He was the only disciple of Jesus, as you probably know, to die a natural death. Legend, tradition, historians have it that John was carried on a, st- a sofa or a stretcher into the streets in, so- in Ephesus and they would ask him about Jesus. They would ask him, what was this Jesus like? Tell us, what did he do? What are the miracles that he, he performed? What was he like to live with? And he would tell of the reality that he had seen Jesus and he had been with him. And it is this John that's about to tell us that our great hope is we will see Jesus. And why do I, I believe it is? Because if you read the first verse of 1 John 1, he says, when he talks about the beginning of the letter, he says, that which we have handled, that which we have seen, that which we have touched, we proclaim to you concerning the world of life. This was a man who had the personal experience of being with Jesus, and he tells us now in the next few verses about a future hope. He was writing to lots of people who had been caught up with a lot of odd ideas. And one of them, you may have heard it, was called Gnosticism. The idea that some Christians have a secret comprehension or a special insight into issues and that they were therefore more spiritual, more holy than others and that they set themselves as a little bit better class Christian than those who are around us. They had this knowledge which gave them a little bit more kudos and actually was incredibly dangerous. You know, sometimes being a part of a Pentecostal stream, we see those worst extremes in our own stream of Pentecostalism, and we really, really do need to be careful that there is only one name under heaven given amongst men through which we must be saved, and there is nothing else that needs to be added to that. John is determined to stamp this out, and he's also writing to a group of people who are facing persecution, and there were lots of false prophets rising amongst the people, telling them that they were not really on target with following Jesus. So this is the context of 1 John, and I'm going to read from 1 John 2, verse 28, through to the first 10 verses of 1 John 3. John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, in him, so that when he is revealed, we may have confidence and not be put to shame before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who does right has been born of him. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Little children, Let no one deceive you. Everyone who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. 
Everyone who commits sin is a, is a child of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born of God do not sin, because God's seed abides in them. They cannot sin, because they have been born of God. The children of God and the children of the devil are revealed in this way. All who do not do what is right are not from God, nor are those who do not love their, neighbor, their brothers and their sisters. A very hard-hitting passage in the middle of 1 John that we will come back to throughout this message, but this very strong call to, purif- to purify ourselves. Our great privilege is that we will see God, that we will see him and be seen by him. We will know him and be known by him. There is no greater privilege in life than to have this assurance as as followers of Christ that we will see him one day. This whole chapter is dripping with grace and mercy and purpose and challenge. You know, actually, I believe that 1 John is one of the hardest books to teach in the whole of the New Testament because in it, you see some things that are different to the way that we think in the Western world. When we in the Western world, those of us who are, well, probably 100% of us, we have been raised to argue in a certain way. We have been raised to put forward an argument in a very specific way. It is called a linear way. It is, re- it is reasoning normally that comes from the Greeks. You start here with an argument, You put your argument, you put your case, you speak to your case, then you conclude, and then you make a decision. It's the way that Paul the Apostle does it. He lays out his theology, he talks to it, he tells us his reasoning, and we make a decision over here. That is how Paul does. It is completely different to the way that John does. John writes as a Jewish or a Hebrew philosopher writes, and it works a little bit like this, and this is the only easy way that I can explain. In post-COVID days, if you ever have the chance to go to New York, there is a famous museum called the Guggenheim Museum. And what makes it different is that it has a spiral staircase. The picture on the right is when it is empty, and you see everything that is exhibited is on the walls, and the spiral staircase takes you to the top. That on the left is when there are lots of people there. Imagine going round and round and round and finding yourself looking at things in a different way from a different perspective as you go up and as you go down. Now, imagine that through the roof you could put a chandelier. Okay? And imagine you had to describe it. So imagine that you were asked, can you please describe the chandelier? Please can you describe what you see? How would one try to describe it as you walked around? You would see the same things, but from different perspectives. You would see the same thing from different angles. You would see different things from the top if you, than if you were underneath it. First time round, you would say, oh, it looks like this. A crystal shining in the morning sun would look different to something that was 
being displayed in the evening. It not only would uh, uh, be determined by what position you were on the staircase or in the spiral, it would also depend what time of day. And everything that you described would be right, it would be accurate, but it would be different and from a different perspective. This is how 1 John is written. Let me push pause there. I just want to, I'll come back to that in a moment. But before moving on, we need to realize if we're going to exegete the New Testament properly, that Revelation, the book of Revelation, is written in the same way. It is written from a Jewish Hebrew perspective and not the Greek way of Paul. Profoundly important when we come and we read the book of Revelation. For otherwise, if we don't know that, we will see it as a very linear Most people interpret the book of Revelation as this happens in chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, all the way through to the end. But that's not how it's written. It is written with this same effect that the same different subjects, the same subjects are being approached, I should say, in a different way and from a different angle. So we have one or two or maybe three different events that are visited time and time again in Revelation. And if we don't know that, we will not understand the book of Revelation. Our ignorance of the way to approach a book and such literature will mean that we miss the meaning of the book completely. We cannot take a Western approach to reading Middle Eastern literature. It is a completely different style. And the most of the modern day interpretation around Revelation is, this is how it's happened, what's in front of you, this is very linear, when in reality it isn't. Let's go back to 1 John. The things that hang in the chandelier of this book are things like truth and sin and love and faithfulness, joy and trust, and as we have read, holiness. And the writer walks around this chandelier and every time he takes a look at it, we see the same thing, but we see it differently. His arguments are circular and not linear. One of the, the only way really to read 1 John is not to read a chapter and come back to it tomorrow. If you're going to read 1 John, read it all in one go because it gives you this a proper approach to it or more accurate approach to it. In this book, in this passage that we read, there is a repeatedly strong challenge about sin that he wants the followers of Jesus in Ephesus to understand that we can't say that we believe something and not live it out. This is the crux of this, one of the the cruxes, I should say, of this epistle. You can't just say something and people accept that you believe it. Most people in the West, most people educated in the Western context would think that if you say something, you believe it. Well, if you say it, well, you believe it. This is not what John teaches. John teaches, if you, say you live, if you say that you believe something, then you will live it out. If you say you believe it, your words are irrelevant. It's all to do with your actions. In other words, actions speak louder than words. There's a huge difference. We can recite the creeds to one another, But if we don't live them, then we don't believe them, John says. We can say whatever we like. Oh, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm living for him. But if it is not lived out in our lives, then it is hollow. 
and it is empty. And this is the message of 1 John. And there's a very real challenge to us from this book. We think if we say it, we believe it. John says, you know, you'll only live it if you truly believe it. John goes on to say, if you're a community, you will love one another. And we are not a community by just saying we are a community. If you're a community, we love our brothers and our sisters. We forgive our brothers and sisters. We welcome and make room for each other. It's what we do and not what we say. So I want to focus for a few moments this evening on the fact that we are children of God and that one day we will see him and we will be like him. The light bouncing off that diamond in the chandelier. And when this truth really permeates, the truth that we will one day see him face to face, when this truth really, really gets into the depth of our being, it will change us, it'll encourage us, it will bring hope, it will bring joy, it will bring purpose and meaning even to the darkest days of our life because whatever we go through now, one day we're gonna see him and that changes our perspective. <laughs> in the few years leading up to August 2019, we had two family weddings to plan, to organize, to prepare, and to help pay for. <laughs> our daughter got married first in 2017 here in Hamilton, and in addition, to all the delights of arranging all that had to be done, wedding, venue, church, shoes, dress, shoes, veil, menus, shoes, hairdressers. We had to do all these things and we had to arrange for family to come from the UK and friends to come from the United States and friends to come from Australia. Then just two, under two years ago, our son got married back in the UK and once again, as we went back, we found ourselves looking at suits and dresses and shoes and flights. Did I mention shoes? <laughs> and rental cars and going to visit family and friends and coordinating friends traveling to the UK from the New Zealand to be part of that big day. Two memorable events, two wonderful occasions that we will never, ever forget. I tell you all this great Jones family news for a reason. In the 12 to 18 months prior to and in the run-up to these memorable special days, we as a family, Hope and I as a couple, we were shaped and formed and drawn by these promised realities. This event, these two events that were happening in our future affected the way that we lived today. We didn't get up in the morning of March the 18th or August the 24th and say, hey, good day for a wedding. We didn't just throw something on. We didn't just make some sandwiches, go get some pies or do whatever, get some tables together. We didn't text a few friends and say, if you're free today, how do you fancy coming to a wedding? <laughs> we were organized as much as we could be. We were planning, we were saving, we were thinking, making sure every detail was right, and we were praying, not at all out of any sense of fear or anxiety, but a sense of anticipation and excitement of these two events that were happening. We were ready for those special days. We woke those mornings and the weather was perfect, 
and the anticipation was palpable and unmistakable. The tears, too, were plentiful, tears of joy and tears of delight. These wonderful events were going to take place, and we were ready. These events reached back from the future into the present, and it changed the way we thought, and we had to get ready, and we did. These, it changed our priorities, it changed how we set them, it changed the way we spent our money, it changed absolutely everything about us for those, for that season. Something we knew that was down the road changed the way that we lived today. And this is the way the Bible teaches us how we should live our lives because Christ has transformed us through his life and death on the cross. That now we live in the reality that in the event we shall see him in the future and so that should be massively impacting how we think, how we are discipled, how we worship and how everything flows because there is a day coming that is influencing what we are doing right now. It should grab hold of our souls, it should radicalize our lives, and it should make us seek after him in holiness and all that we are. We are saying yes to something that lies ahead of us that is earth-shatteringly going to incredibly change us. It will change every atom of the universe. It will change every aspect of our character. It will seep into the deepest recesses of our heart. And the privilege is is this, because we know that we are going to see him and therefore our lives should be lived in the light of the anticipation of that event. We shall see him, John says. And because of this, everything about us should point forward to tomorrow and that event. It reaches back, it challenges us. It becomes the reason that we live. It is our great privilege that above all things we will be able to spend time with him. And that incredible privilege that we have and that sense of possibility draws us in the pursuit of Christ and to live lives that are worthy of him just want to help us understand the privilege of our new position as followers of Christ. You know, our privilege is to work out his plans and his purposes here on earth. We really are about his business. And if we're not, then we need to realign that with what he has called us to do and what we have ahead of us. 1 John 3, 1, I just want to read it again. It says, see what love the Father has given us that we shall be called children of God, and that is what we are. There is no greater thrill. No words can explain the inexplicable joy and delight of being part of God's family. You know, we are saved, and we are saved now. There is no future date for it. You know, when we became Christians, we were adopted, we were accepted, but we were not acquitted. He never says that we are not guilty, but he does say we are pardoned. And there is a huge difference. The guilt we deserve is lifted from us and placed on the only person who was not guilty. That is the incredible thrill of being a Christian. The freedom which only he deserved is lifted from him and placed on the guilty ones. 
i.e. you and me. We are not acquitted, but pardoned. He has looked upon our sin and his forgiveness and gives us freedom to live lives free from guilt, free from threat, from judgment, and much more. Not that we don't deserve it, but because he loves us. For when we accepted his son, we entered a whole new realm of relationship and reality. We are today adopted, accepted, pardoned with a great future privilege. Paul talking to the church in Rome says these wonderful words in Romans 8, 12 to 17. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is, ver- it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Pastorally, in conversations with people, I come across far too many followers of Christ, far too many believers who know that they are saved by grace, but somehow they feel that they have to live by law to prove that God made a right decision in reaching out and saving them. That they have to live by the laws, that they have to make sure they do everything and it's controlled by fear and anxiety. You know, God doesn't want you to prove anything to him. He has done it all. He made a right decision, believe it or not, when he died for you and when he died for me, and he does not regret it for one simple moment. Every sin, past, present, and future, has been dealt with. Every barrier is broken down and removed now, and thus comes the challenge to change our lives and to follow him with a purity and with a love for the things of him. I think that what John is trying to say here, which is so important for many of us, maybe typical of our personalities that seem common to us, is that we're not simply believing something with our head, but we need to get it into our hearts. That there is an experience of the love of God and we've got to know it and we've got to feel it and we're not just able to recite it, give its dimensions, but experience it at the very core of our being. And sometimes we are so proper that we have lost something of the awesomeness that blows us away. You know, this is going to sound a bit naff, forgive me. But to look in the mirror each morning and to realize that no matter what happens, we are redeemed by God and his love and his grace is available to us. (laughs) What John is attempting to do through this passage is to get the truth from our heads to our hearts. This may be really, really short physically, but for many, it is the longest distance ever, and it can take such a long time. For me, as a Welshman whose life, culture, and tradition is rooted in music, I have found song and music to be valuable tools that have 
helped me absorb and even personalize some of the great truths of God. And often in my own worship time, I go back to the old songs of my youth to help me relearn a truth. Written in 1739 to celebrate his conversion, which he regarded as having taken place on the 21st of May that year, Charles Wesley wrote the hymn, And Can It Be? Some of you will, may not have even have heard it, but one of the lines says this, My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Set to some incredible music, something of that grips my soul. It grips my heart. It helps me encounter God. But for me, probably the greatest hymn that lifts my soul, calibrates my heart and my mind, and brings me to a fuller understanding of the work of Christ is another famous hymn by Horatio Spafford. It is simply entitled, It Is Well With My Soul. And there is one line, there is one line that to me is, does everything. It says this, My sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. My sin, not in part, but the whole. This captures the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for me. My sin, not in part. Another song fairly recently that has really impacted me is Who You Say I Am by Ben Fielding and Reuben Morgan. I think it was released in about 2017, 2018, and if you've never listened to it, very, very powerful. Reuben Morgan, writing about the song, says, this song is about freedom, freedom from the tyranny of self, free from the opinion of doubters, set free from the chains of our past and the hopelessness of life without God. God's kindness has brought us from the outside and made us royalty. God's truth over us is final. Something, sometimes it is good to remind ourselves what God says about us. All these, for me, help me capture the reality of what Christ has done. Something of what John wants us to do is to be so caught up with what Jesus Christ is offering us as followers of Christ. You know, these examples are not just simply a walk through Chris Jones' favorite Christian songs. I highlight that for a reason. I said this morning, I so love music. <laughs> I've got a favorite top 10 list. And my kids think that I got about 250 songs in my top 10 because I'm always saying, oh, that's in my top 10. And I think if they kept a ledger, there would be at least 250. You know, these, they affect me. They move me. They impact me. They sway and they grip me at the core of my being and I know God and I know him better because of those things. And I believe that we all have something that helps us connect at a deeper le level if we will allow ourselves to find it. You know, for some of you, it will be music. For others, it'll be poetry or prose, painting or nature, creation or creating something, singing your heart out, maybe even out of tune, but when no one else is around. I really do believe that somehow God wants to do something in the depths of our heart and our soul and that it's personal to you. You may hate music, who cares? That's for me. You have got to find that for yourself. You know, and if we've been saved so long that all of this has sounded a bit twee, 
I pray that God would break in this day and that some of us need to be undone by his mercy once again, that we never lose the wonder of the cross and one day we will see him. Samuel Trevor Francis was a rebellious teenager, raised in a Christian home, refused to do what his parents said and wanted to live his own way. He lost his parents' fortune through just bad investments and a lifestyle and he lost a lot of money. And one evening he was standing on the banks of the River Thames, actually on a bridge overlooking the River Thames, and he was ready to throw himself off the bridge into the river and to certain death. As he stood there, his life in the balance, this verse, 1 John 3, 1, came to him. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Came to his mind. He was raised, I said, in a godly home. His mother taught him scripture from a young age. He turned his life around. He had another encounter with Jesus. He finished his studies and he became a merchant banker and regained the fortune for his parents. He tells the story in his own words, which we don't have time for today. But if you get the chance, it's well worth reading the story of Samuel Trevor Francis. From this, he goes on and writes one of the most famous and majestic of all hymns. You may not have heard of Francis, but all of us will have probably have heard these words. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast and measured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love, leading onward, leading homeward to your glorious rest above. Incredible words of a man who's had an impact, who'd been impacted by God. You know, we don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. He gave it to us like children with no name who have been given a name. And this is what Paul picks up in in Romans 9, 25 and 26. He says, as indeed he says to Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called children of the living God. We get echoes of this again in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. Familiar words, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim, in order that you might proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Again, We've been reminded of the incredible privilege that is ours. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why would God do this for us? In his really good book on marriage, Tim Keller says this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. To be fully known and truly loved is what it means to be loved by God. This love liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for all the things that life can throw at us. To know that we are loved with nothing to prove and nothing to earn whilst knowing that God will finish the work that he has begun in us. That we have no one to impress. That we don't have to impress anybody else because he loves us and he has done 
all these things for us. Again, back to 1 John. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and this is what we are. The reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, and the word in the, in the Greek there, beloved, means listen, listen up, hearken, get this. All those are, 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 are pretty valid translations. We are God's children. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this, when we, he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. You know, our current position has been changed and it's in operation right now. The promise that one day we shall be like him excites me beyond words. There is a day coming when the very presence of sin will be removed from our lives and we will never sin again. If that doesn't excite us, I don't know what anything will. That there is a day coming that we will not sin again. We will be morally without sin. We will be intellectually without falsehood or error. We will be physically without weakness or imperfection. We will be the perfect version of who we were made to be. When? When we see him. When we see him. You know, I said this this morning, my family are looking forward to that day, especially for me, because I won't be able to open my mouth to make room for the other foot. I'll never blunder in again to a situation and make a mistake. I will never make a wrong judgment or I'll never jump to conclusion too quickly. And I will never hurt anyone ever again. That moment is coming and this is the promise of we will be like him. You know, some of us are sitting in the midst of terrible choices and you feel stuck and the devil is whispering in your ear, you are useless, you will never change. Once a failure, always a failure. One day, we will be liberated from his lies. You know, getting ready for our son's and daughter's wedding, were, weddings were exciting. And they had the power to reach back into our present and change us. So therefore, getting ready for the wedding feast of the Lamb has a positive influence on the choices I make today. It reaches back from whenever it will be in the future into our souls today and says, you can make a good choice and live a life for him. You can make a choice to live a life that is holy and pure. You can make the choice to live out of love and to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You know, many of you will have heard me say that I grew up in a generation when I heard pastors and preachers talking so much about sin, they always were trying to scare you into eternity, that if you died tonight, which is technically true, if you died tonight and you didn't know Jesus, then you're gonna go to, you're gonna go to hell. Technically is right. but scared the living daylights out of us. And some people, as I said, got scared into heaven rather than being drawn by his grace and his majesty. We used to call it a turn or burn theology. It's not even biblical in that sense. It's not even the right call to make us live holy lives. You see, the call to live holy lives is based on the fact is that one day we will see him and one day we will be like him. And it reaches back into our present and it picks us up and says, well, you have failed start again. You have accepted my son, Jesus Christ. You are forgiven. Now go and live as he wants you to live. 
take another step forward because God has not finished with us. And when we fall again, he says, pick yourself up and go again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he has also glorified. All those things are in the past tense. At the cross and at the empty tomb, all the power we need to get this job done has been given us through Jesus Christ. The same power that has sanctified us will draw us, not scare us, but will draw us into a holy and bold life, one of passion, one of pursuit, and one of incredible, credible privilege because one day we will see him and we will know him. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.